Alrighty, brothers, let us look to our Lord. Let us go ahead and bow our heads and pray to God, pray to our God. Blessed Father in heaven, we ask you to meet us at this place, that you would indeed allow us to learn of this uh, wonderful, wonderful work that is your work, Lord, and yet also the work of your wonderful apostle, Paul, Lord. We pray, Father, that we may be able to be greatly blessed by this work as it has blessed the church and truly sets a foundation, Lord, for our Christian doctrine and teaching. I pray that it would have an effect on our church in particular, on our members that are here, that they would be able indeed, Lord, to learn, to be able to be properly instructed, that you would be with us that are preaching, Lord, with uh, Pastor Gerardo, as well as myself, Lord, and that you would indeed ground our hearts in your word and in your spirit so that we may be able to do all things in a way that is pleasing to you in the way Jesus Christ conducts himself. For we ask it in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, brothers, we have a wonderful, wonderful privilege of being able to start today the Book of Romans. Now, the Book of Romans is a book that could be difficult for some to understand because it does get very deep into theology. But it's actually an excellent way to be able to get acquainted with the things that you should know because there are things that Christians should know. It is not just, it's not just about saying, I believe in Jesus and I love Jesus. It's not enough, brothers. What you believe, who God is, is important. And so that's what we're going to get into in this book. This is actually a letter. While we call it a book, it's actually a letter that was done by Paul to the church at Rome. And it's to the believers who probably were, from my, what my studies have been showing me, predominantly Jewish. Now, how do we know that? Because there's so many issues that are going to be dealt with within the book regarding Gentiles and, and Jews and making those uh, particular distinctions and speaking about the nature of Christ himself because Christ is the one who unites us both. He's the one that has made it possible for us who are Gentiles to be able to receive the blessing of God because to whom were the scriptures, to whom were the covenants given to? Who were the people of God? The Israelites, the Jews, right? But with Christ, he has opened the door and has given access to all men to come to him. And that's what we have in this wonderful book. And I'd like to begin by reading from Romans 10, 12, where it actually speaks to this, where it actually addresses this particular issue, which says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. So that's the point that Paul is greatly making, first and foremost, about the church, that the church is not only of the Jew who is called, but also of all those who are of faith. If you are someone who believes in Christ, if you believe in the way of the Lord, then you are his child as much as one who is an Israelite who believes. As a matter of fact, as we will study in the book and we will find out through the preaching, if you are not of faith, even though you are born of the seed of Abraham, you don't have any part in the kingdom of God because it is children that become the children of God by faith. Now, another thing that I'd like to point out is that this is a book that is actually done in a way that's called didactic. What does didactic mean? Didactic means that it, it means it's instructional. It's done in, in an instructional form. When we look at the Gospels, when we look at the book of Acts, right? When we look at the book of Kings, right? Or the book of Samuel, what we're being given there is we're being given narrative. In other words, we're being told history. And through that history, do we learn? Yes. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, we actually have teaching of Jesus in there. But primarily the book is what? It's an account of what has happened. Whereas in the book of Romans, it's actually very different. What makes it so special is that what the book of Romans actually does is it's actually explaining the purpose of what is in the Gospels. So this is one of the things that I personally like to do. When I meet someone and that person has no idea of what Christianity is, the first thing I tell them is, Read the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, you're going to be acquainted with the essence of our religion, which is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ being our essence, you'll understand his life, you'll understand what he taught, and, and, and his apostles, right? And what he, what he gave to his apostles. But the significance of those things that are said in, the, in those Gospels are actually explained in the book of Romans. Another book that's also excellent in doing that is the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is another great book that gives us excellent insight into what is the essence of this teaching and explains to us 
Uh, it's actually, the book of Hebrews is really excellent because it really gets into the Old Testament and the significance of, of the person and work of Christ. But today we're focusing on Romans. And so when you read the book of Romans, keep that in mind. That having known the life of Christ, what those things mean. And I'd like to uh, point out that in this gospel we're going to see, uh, we see, well in the gospels actually you see a, a number of different things. Which is that you see the, the virgin birth, right, being spoken of. We see the calling of the Gentiles the righteous uh, life and death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? The institution, the instituting of the Church of Christ. And so these are elements, obviously there's a lot more there, but these are elements that are all found in the Gospels. Well, these things are made further clear in the book of Romans because the book of Romans actually gives us insight into those different things. And so what I want to do at this moment is in essence give you a little preview and a little, as, as it is an introduction, into some of the doctrines and some of these ideas that we're going to be uh, seeing that come from, from the Gospels and how they're actually laid out in the book of Romans. Now, the first thing that actually the book of Romans gets into is what is called general revelation. Now, most of you don't know this, but if you believe in the Word of God and you believe that God has spoken through His Word, we believe in what's called special revelation. Why is it called special revelation? Because it isn't natural. Right? This is something that must be given by God. Right? How do we know that Jesus Christ is who He is? Is it because nature tells us that? No. It's because God has spoken. Right? It is God who has established that. But yet, even though we don't know these specific things, such as the Trinity, nature itself declares itself that it is, that it is of God. In, in uh, Romans 1, verse 20, we read, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived and ever, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what this is telling us, brothers and sisters, is that when we are living in this world, we are not to live vainly. We are not to just live and not really look at you know, our lives, not examine. Because one of the things that I actually learned recently was that the word prayer one of the connotations of the word prayer in the Hebrew is uh, looking in. And it, has to, and it has to do with the idea of meditation. And so that when we speak before God, we are actually to examine ourselves. Now, if we examine ourselves, brothers, you don't think that that also entails examining the world outside? Of course, right? We have to be examining all things because even the things that are outside of us have an effect on us. And so when we look at the world and we see how the world is made, and that it is a purpose, purposeful world, we should see that this actually points to a God. Why? In many, actually, uh, backs, back and forths that I've had with people who are atheistic, a lot of times I ask them, do you believe in God? And, then, and sometimes they'll say, well, I don't believe in God as a person or, or an individual or this old man up in the skies. says, I, you know, I believe in that, that God is actually a power. And one time someone told me that and I said, well, what does that mean, though? Well, I mean that there's some force out there that is uh, creating these things. Now I ask them, let me ask you a question. Have you ever met electricity that has character? Right? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I go, if you look at creation, I go, if you look at nature, it doesn't have character. There's only one thing that has character. I said, that's a human being. You know? Have you ever seen a giraffe, you know, uh, 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 have dominion over a lion? No, right? Why is that? Because they're not made that way. But yet human beings are able to do all sorts of things, you know, with the creation. I said, you don't think that, you, that, that that's kind of interesting? I mean, if force is better than I am, right? Because obviously it created me. Then why, why do I actually have the ability to be over force? Because we are able to control nature, right? We have the ability to control nature. But yet, if, if there is something beyond us, that is, and that actually when we think about it, we are actually like it. It has to be greater than us, right? Or if we are like it, when, when for instance, the Bible speaks of us being made in the, in the image of God, right? One of the ways that we know that we are made in the image of God is because we are to reflect His holiness. And what is the law of God? What is His holiness? It is His character. It's a reflection of God's character. And we are to reflect God's character. That's what Adam and Eve were created to do. Not only Adam, but Eve as well, because she was also made in the image of God. So it's very important that we understand that when we're looking at our world, 
We have to be properly looking at it and coming to an understanding of the things that we are and the things that, in other words, and what nature is. And that's why this is saying that when we stand before the Lord, people should know better. People should know better. They should be able to look at the way the world is and deduce that there is a God. That's why no man is going to stand before God and be excused because of the things that they believe. Now, I will tell you this. There are many, there are many atheists in our world today. And why is that? The majority of it has to do because they do a, a good amount of preaching themselves. Right? If you turn on the TV, if you go to school, you know, many of the books today, what, in what perspective do they teach? They teach from that perspective, from a secularist, atheist perspective. As a matter of fact, there's even a bias against religion and Christianity in particular. And so if you have a world that's against you, what is that going to produce, brothers and sisters? That's going to produce an ungodly people. It's going to produce ungodly thinking. That's why it's very important that these things that are in the book of Romans, brothers and sisters, that we learn them. Because these are the things that we need to be communicating. Who are God's mouthpieces here on the earth? We are. So we have to be learning these things so that we can properly communicate the word of God. We know that Psalm 19.1 says, you know, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies show his handiwork. So even in the Old Testament, without Paul having to say this, it's already showing us that we should, we are to look at, the, at, at the, you know, the creation and see that it is an expression of God. I'll continuing forward, when we get to chapters 2 and 3, this is where we basically get into the issue of the guilt of man, right? We know that God called uh, Moses, right, to deliver his law to the Jewish people. So the Jewish people knew God's way, right, through the covenant. Now, were they able to follow that covenant? Having known that, they, they, were they able to keep that covenant? The answer is no, right? And so the, the thing is, it's an interesting thing because you would think to yourself, well, I mean, if God was actually kind enough, right, to let us know, why were they not able to keep it? Well, the main reason that they were not able to keep it is because it's an issue of the heart. We've kind of had a discussion about this, I think, in one of the Sunday schools, that when we look at all the issues of life, the Bible actually tells us that it's an issue of the heart. And so the wonderful thing that Paul actually lays out in chapter 2 and 3, is the fact that the Jews with the law, right, are guilty, right? But even those that didn't have the law, which are the Gentiles, he's in essence returning to the very argument that he made in the first chapter, which is that they do the things that are within the law. For instance, how many times have you met people, I mean, actually most people that I know, I don't know of anybody who actually condones murder, right? Or even stealing, nobody condones that. Everybody understands that that, that is wrong. And even if you weren't brought up as a Christian, if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Hindu, if you're a Zoroastrian, they taught the same things. Now, sometimes they put a little spin on these things, you know, and they, and they did teach to, uh, that you'd be able to do this to certain people. But that just goes to show us the glory of God, right? And that the fact that because we are all children of God in the sense that we were all made by God, right? That he actually applies it to all men. But the things that... Uh, that we, that we see in our world are understood by men by nature. And that's why Paul uses a very interesting uh, way of putting it. I don't know if you guys, those of you have, who have read the, uh, the, the, the book of Romans, he actually says that the, that the law is in their hearts, that it's written in their hearts. Now, why is, that, why is that such a strange way of putting it? Because when you look at Jeremiah 31, when the new covenant is spoken of, it says that God would put his law in the hearts and in the minds of his people, right? And so what does that mean? What that means is that the law of God, when you become a Christian, the law of you abide by it. The law of God is within you. And yet Paul is using this very similar expression about those who were Gentiles, who did not have the law. So that, that shows us that the grace of God itself, even in nature, it has given this to men. And because they have this, this law, right? Obviously they don't have all the details that the Israelites did, and the scripture actually addresses that because too much is given, what is? Much is required, right? And so one of the things that we're seeing is that it won't matter on the day of judgment. When Christ comes, he's going to be judging everyone. No one's going to be guiltless. No one will be guiltless on that day. Looking now towards uh, Romans 3, verses 9 through 12, I really like uh, the way it's laid out here because I think it really drives the essence to the point that I was trying to make, which says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And for those of you who know, this is actually something that's a reference from the Old Testament. This is from the prophet Isaiah. So that God, since even the Old Testament has laid out the nature of the heart of man, even within those that were supposed to be his people. How, who is righteous, brothers? None. None. And the reason that no one is righteous is because no one seeks for God. And as we were mentioning in, in uh, chapter 1 with the issue of a general revelation, which actually speaks to what's called a natural theology. That's another phrase that uh, you may want to acquaint yourself with. Natural theology has to do with, with uh, the idea of the understanding that we get of God from nature. But as we were speaking, we see again what I had addressed earlier, which is that Paul is making a very important point about how the Jew doesn't have a special place because he was, you know, a son of Abraham. Because even they, who, uh, what's it called, uh, had the, the oracles and the law, were not keeping it. But likewise, those who, are, who were not given the law, in essence, know the law by the nature, right? And the way, and the way that they were made, being made in the image of God. Uh, continuing forward, one other issue that's very, very important, and this is actually a very important teaching that came out of the... Uh, of the, of the Reformation, of the Protestant Reformation. Now, I'm not saying that they invented it or that they discovered it and it wasn't taught before. It's actually, this was understood and taught in the church before, but there was a, an apostasy of sort in that there was a, a, a wrong understanding of this that, has, that came into the, uh, the Christian church at the time. Uh, a lot of times we refer to the, uh, the Catholic Church, and, even, and we know that today if we refer to the Catholic Church, we think of what's called the Roman Catholic Church. But the ancient church the United Church that was before called itself Catholic because the term Catholic actually means universal, right? So the universal church, you know, worked, uh, worked what's it called, uh, in, in the West, you know, had, had a Rome as its head, and uh, they started to teach doctrines, of course, that were different from those that were found in Scripture. So the, the point with Martin Luther was that he discovered the Scriptures, he began to meditate on the Scriptures, and he began to understand properly the things of God. And one of the things that was understood properly was the doctrine of justification uh, justification by faith. And so I'd like to read from Romans 4, which states, verses uh, 1 through 4, What then shall we say was, excuse me, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, the error that had crept into the church was that one had to justify oneself through, through his works. And if you notice here, it's actually speaking against that. As a matter of fact, if you notice in verse 5, notice that it says, but believes on him who what? Who justifies the ungodly. Who is a justifier? God is a justifier. Right? So faith is an instrument. But the one who actually justifies us is God. And it's that faith that is counted to us as righteousness. Continuing forward, there's another... Uh, Doctrine that's actually controversial within uh, certain circles, even within uh, certain people that, I that I've met that I thought were believers, that actually deny original sin. Now, for those of you who don't know what original sin is, the, the idea of original sin is that we bear the sin of Adam, right? When Adam fell in the garden, you know, along with Eve, that, that stain of sin was put upon humanity. There's people who disagree with that because they say, wait a minute, that, that's not fair. That's not fair. How is it that, you know, Adam sinned and, and then the rest of us get punished for him, right? I mean, that doesn't seem like, right? I mean, in our day today, right? I mean, we, we, we suffer for our own sins. As a matter of fact, there are scriptures that speak about that, right? Such as in, uh, in Ezekiel. And uh, so what happens is that at first when you, when you look at this, at this particular issue, it seems logical. It seems like, well, it, it seems like God's being unfair here. 
But in reality, it's actually showing us the way in which God works. Because when Abraham, excuse me, when Adam was, was actually established, he was established to be the head of humanity. He was the head of humanity. He was the first man. He was a man who was supposed to, in essence, guide us into the proper way, right? Along with Eve. But he, it, is, it is on him because he's actually the head. But what happened? Because he fell, there was a curse that was put upon him. Now, we know that that actually is true because did not God tell him that there would be a cursing, that there would be consequences for the fact that, that uh, if they were to disobey God, and yet he chose to do it. So part of that consequence has to do with that your, his own children, which are we, are affected by it, right? But the reason why this is not so foreign and it shouldn't be looked at as such a bad idea is because the same way that Adam, in essence, what's it called, uh, gave us his sin, we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The reason why, if, if we were to follow that principle of saying, well, that's not right to do, we, we, I can't you know, take what Adam did, well, then you can't take what Jesus did either, right? So, I mean, who wants that? You know, does anybody prefer that? No, I think I'd rather be on the, on the side of grace, right? I'd rather receive the gift of God, the, the gift of the Son, you know, of, of receiving His righteousness so that when we stand in that day of judgment, I know that I will be cleared because of the wonderful work of Christ. And I'd like to read uh, from Romans 5, verses 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that many will be made righteous. So we see how this is clearly taught in Scripture. The book of Romans is very, very clear on this particular issue. And it's very, very important because this, again, has to do with the person of Christ and what he's, what he's done. If you don't believe this doctrine, then that means you're denying the work of Christ. That's why when you hear people say, those who don't believe in original sin are heretics, that's what we're referring to. This is, this is a very essential doctrine that needs to be understood and believed by those within the church. Continuing forward, I'd like to now address, uh, address one, of the, uh, one of the, what's it called, uh, elements of the tulip, and which is the first one, which is actually, which is actually very important to me uh, becoming a Calvinist and, and going towards Reformed theology, and that is a total depravity. Because total depravity has to do with the nature of man. It has to do with the fact that because we are fallen creatures, man is incapable of being able to justify himself, being able to be righteous. And because he is cursed, right, in his, in his state, he is unable to come to God because of who, of who he is as, as a sinner. As I said earlier, the idea that, um, that what's it called, uh, that we are not able to keep the law, it really is an issue of the heart because I actually uh, didn't put this into my sermon, but it is an important thing to point, which is that in the book of Deuteronomy, when, when uh, Moses actually presents the law to the people, he makes a very interesting statement, which he says, this is not hard for you guys to keep. You know, this is something that you guys reasonably should be able to keep. He says, you don't have to, you don't have to say, oh, you know, where is someone, you know, going to go beyond the sea to, to, to do this? But what it's in reference to is to the fact that the reason why it is, the reason that it's hard for us, brothers and sisters, is not because the laws in themselves are not, we're not able to keep them because they're hard in themselves. This has to do with our heart. Because in our heart, we don't want to do the things of God. We don't want to follow the law. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a great uh, preacher who some of you might know by the name of D. James Kennedy, and he had this uh, really good presentation where he was talking about one of the ways that he would deal with atheists. And he asked a particular atheist, because an atheist said, well, you're talking to me about the Bible, but I don't believe in the Bible. You know, I, I don't believe in the Ten Commandments. You know? And he said, so, he says, so, so you think that, so you don't think these are good? He said, no, I, I have my own... Uh, my own standard, you know, my own thing that, that I believe. And he says, let me ask you this question. So, of all the things that you believe, do you keep everything? Do you keep everything that you believe? Do you follow everything that you believe? And the man stood for a minute, and he said, actually, no. He says, so you have violated, you know, your, 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 own, your, own, your own law. He said, yes. He says, okay, so then... You yourself are attesting to the nature of the fact that you are a sinner even by your own standard. 
So how much more are you not going to be a sinner by the standard of God? And, and once again, judgment day is coming. God is coming to judge the world. He has a day that he has appointed. And, and what are men going to be judged by, brothers and sisters? They're going to be judged by the word of God, by the law of God. And that's why it's important that we understand who we are and that it's because of our nature, because of our way of being, that we are sinners. It's not because we're, uh, you know, it, it's not because of, alone I would say this because it obviously does have an effect, but it's not because of circumstances or evils that have come upon us. Because one of the things that we do have to understand is that the Lord, what, first of all, the Lord tells us not to do what? To not repay evil with evil. So if we were brought up in a home where much evil was done to us, while we may see it as like, well, then I'm going to go ahead and be evil, or I'm going to repay evil to those who have done evil for me, that's actually not the proper, proper thing to do. If God has given you the proper understanding and you know what is right, you've got to do what is right, or you or yourself will be held accountable for this. So it's very, very important that we understand who we are, and that the fact is that because of the fact that we are the way that we are, the Bible describes it as us being slaves to sin. We are slaves to our sins. In many ways, I think for some of us, it's very easy through our temptations, right? It's very easy for us to fall to our temptations. That's actually an indication of how we're slaves to sin. Because if we were not a slave to it, we wouldn't be so easily led by it. But we see that actually what the Bible actually teaches is that in total depravity, we're slaves to sin. And that when we are freed from sin, that we actually become or we are to be slaves of God. Right? So I'm going to read from Romans 6, verses 22 and 23. But now that you have, excuse me, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this also speaks to the importance of something else that we're learning here, which is, the importance of sanctification. Sanctification is, that is a process. For instance, when, when the Protestant Reformation took place, there was obviously a debate between the issue of whether justification was a declaration or if it was a process of man, in essence, justifying himself and becoming holy, right? But we know that as we just, uh, we just uh, read, that it is God who justifies. But when it comes to the issue of sanctification, that's a process. Justification is not the process. The process is sanctification. And the way that we know that, brothers and sisters, is because for those of you who have accepted the Lord, do you not struggle with sin? Do you not still struggle with sin? There are certain sins, perhaps, that you know, we're able to overcome by the grace of God, you know, because there's also the, re uh, the renewing of the mind. But because the fact that we're still struggling with particular sins and with particular weaknesses, that's a sign that... This work of holiness is a process. It's something that God is working in you. And obviously, the aim of the Christian is to be perfecting himself. Not to re reach perfection here, because we know that the only time we're really going to be perfected is when we are remade perfect in our resurrection. right? Because, but right now, you know, while we have life in the Spirit of God that is given to us, right, which renews our mind and our heart, what are we in the flesh? Is this a glorified flesh? No, our, our spirit you know, and our mind is renewed, but our flesh is still the same flesh. So that's the big battle that we have in our life today, that we have to be fighting against the flesh. Not to mention, brothers and sisters, that, we, that there is another aspect that I think a lot of times uh, we tend to forget, which is that there is also spiritual forces at work. And that these spiritual forces, there's, you know, there's a war going on and they're working, they're working against you. They're working against God. So even more, they're going to work against the people of God. Jesus is very clear, brothers and sisters. What is the devil's intent for you? That you die. That he wants you to die. Yes. He wants you to be dead. That's what gives him pleasure. That's what he desires. And so this is one of the reasons why we fight against the flesh. Why we're fighting against the world. Because we know that the devils themselves have an influence on the world. Not only do we, in and of ourselves, because of, the, of our total de, uh, depraved state, bring about corruption, but that corruption is further made more manifest by the work of Satan and his minions. And so this, this points to us that it's so important that we have that connection with God, that we have that connection with Christ, 
And what is one of the ways, or the, or the essential way actually, in which we have that, that connection with God is through His Word. His Word is what gives us that power. That's why at the beginning actually, I actually forgot to mention this, and I'll go back to it, but in reference to the, uh, to the book of Romans being an explanation uh, of the gospel, uh, you don't have to turn to it, brothers. You don't have to go all over. I'll just read it. But uh, I, had, I had as reference Romans 1.16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When it says Greek, it's using that as a synonym to the Gentiles. But that's the power. The power of God is what is given to us in His Word, the gospel. There's a text that was actually shared by Brother Brad uh, with us that I thought was a really excellent text, which is Psalm 81. And I have verses uh, 10 through 12, which says, I am your Lord God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. The reason I really like this text is because this is a great example of us, of the, of the way people are, the people that have been created by God. None is righteous, none seeks God, everyone wants to go to their way. Now, and in particular, this is actually speaking about the generation uh, you know, of, that was brought out, out of Egypt. Now, I want you to remember, brothers and sisters, did not God manifest himself in a great way to them? Do you remember the plagues? Yep. Right? I mean, that shows an amazing, an amazing work of God there. And then having, you know, the, the taking them out, you know, taking Pharaoh and his army and drowning them in the Red Sea while the, the Red Sea was parted for them. And isn't, isn't it amazing that these things were done and yet their hearts did not turn? Their hearts didn't turn. That generation, their hearts didn't turn. As a matter of fact, God makes it so manifest of the state of man that in those Israelites, it says that that generation, which was also led in, in the wilderness, they all died. Faithless generation, they all died. That's why we have the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Exodus, the law of God was given. The reason why we have Deuteronomy is because it's the second giving of the law, and that's given to the following generation, which was led by whom? By Joshua, which is, of course, a foreshadow, because for, for many of you, I don't know if you, if you have this understanding, but Jesus is actually Greek for Joshua. So we have a wonderful picture in the Old Testament of Moses being given the law, Right? So the righteousness of God is given to them for them to follow the righteousness of God. And was that able to bring them righteousness? And bring redemption? No. Right? As a matter of fact, Moses himself, the giver of the law, was not, as even he as a head was not able to do it. He was not allowed into the promised land because of his own sin in the way he represented himself to the people of God. But who was God? Who did God make it manifest in? Who did he give that grace to? He gave that grace to Joshua. And the people, the generation that followed were able to reach that land because of Joshua. In the same way, brothers and sisters, the same thing with us. We're not going to be justified by the law, just knowing the law. To know the law doesn't mean anything, because at the end of the, at the, end of the day, we cannot even trust in ourselves. The book of uh, Jeremiah, I think it's Jeremiah 23, 14, that says, uh, uh, I'm not sure if I gave that, that, that citation correctly, but it speaks of that the heart is wicked, you know, and utterly deceitful. Who can know it? And it's, that's in reference to the heart of man. And so it's very, very important that we understand who we are. And, that's, and for me, this was one of the reasons why this was so key for me was because as I was growing up, and I did grow up in the church, you know, I had this idea, even in the church, I had this idea that, oh, you had to be a good person. The aim is, you know, it's for you to do good and to try to be a good person. I go to school, what do they teach you? They tell me the same thing. But what happened? As I started growing up, and I started to see, sadly, how some of the family members were, how some of the people in the church were, how the teachers were, how, how, you know, how life was out there. And I thought to myself, you know, this world doesn't seem like a very good place. It actually seems like a pretty dark place. You know, and for many, for many years, that, that was my view. And I thought maybe there's something wrong with me looking at that thing. So when I was introduced to, uh, to Calvinism and we, and we speak about total depravity, I was like, wow, that makes perfect sense. That made perfect sense to me. We're, we're flawed creatures. We don't have hearts for God, and that's why things are the way that they are. That's why we need God. That's why we need Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is a great gift that God gave unto us. Another uh, doctrine that is uh, taught in the book of Romans in chapter 8 is 
what is called the golden chain of redemption. And let us look at Romans 8.30, which states, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is showing us the process in the way that God has worked out towards our salvation, right? The first thing, brothers and sisters, is that the reason that you are here, if you have Christ, is because God determined that. It is God who showed you grace, called you, right? That's the second thing. He gives you the calling, right? We speak of the effectual calling, right? And then we have the justification, right? Because when you are called, right, and you exercise faith, right, and you have your faith, then it is that faith that, that, is, that is in essence also given to you, right, in the renewing of your mind, is what in essence uh, brings the justification. And having been justified, then comes the glorification that God brings. And we will be ultimately glorified in the resurrection. Because what is the resurrection? It's the glorification of the body. So in this life right now, we're working with our souls, we're working with our spirits, the renewing of our mind, but that will be made complete in the, resur in the resurrection. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that the resurrection is also an essential. If someone doesn't believe in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, then you don't believe in the resurrection. If Christ isn't risen, then you're not risen. Or vice versa. You know, if you don't believe you're going to be risen, that means that you're not, you're not in Christ. Because that's the intent. That's the full extent of salvation. Continuing forward, we have the controversial doctrine of election. This is obviously a, a controversy between many Christians because they, most people out there actually believe in their wills, right? They believe in what, what their mind and what they, their desires uh, uh, point to. And they think that it is the proper thing is for God to actually base salvation based on, on one's conduct and not on the fact that it is God who actually uh, did this work. But the question, number one, first of all, is what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible say about this? And the, the book of Romans, in chapter 9 through, through, uh, through 11, speaks about election. But in chapter 9, it is, it is actually very, very clear. And this is one of the, this is actually, this is the text that actually to me pretty much made this uh, uh, non-negotiable once, once I read it. And that's at Romans 9, 13 through 16. It states, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Look at what verse 16 says. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Amen. So... That's the reason why we believe this book. This is very, very clear. It's not based on what you desire and the will of man. God isn't leaving it up to you. That it's actually His work. Now, you may ask, well, but what is God's purpose in that? Well, you'll have to stick around and see what most likely Pastor Gerardo will teach on <laughs> in one of the sermons. It could be me, but, you know. And, uh, and, and what's that? No pressure. <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, and we'll further, that's, that's actually one of the wonderful things. We'll, we'll further learn on this uh, particular issue. Uh, going forward, uh, I'd like to uh, look at, I'm going to be uh, skipping a couple of chapters for the sake of time. Uh, but, you know, we do have chapter uh, 13, which actually speaks on the issue of government. And it's, it's, a, it's an important chapter. And we will be obviously learning on that. We have uh, also Romans 14, which uh, speaks on the issue of, uh, of Christian, Christian freedom and, and the conscience. And, uh, but I want to go ahead and jump actually to Romans 16. Because this is actually a, a chapter that I found myself uh, rather surprised by. Because it's in essence a final salutation that the Apostle Paul is giving. But I was actually surprised at how many women were in here. And the reason why this is important is because we live in a society that, first of all, is trying to create that balance, right? They're saying, oh, you know, the world's been sexist and, you know, Christianity is sexist and, you know, and... And we're trying to bring, bring down the women and not give them their proper place. Well, the reason why women, women don't hold office in, in the church, it's not because they're not smart. It's not because they're not capable. 
but merely because God is creating a picture. God is creating a picture in these things. Was, I mean, if you guys think about it, in the sin, in the garden, who was the first one to sin? It was Eve, right? But notice that it doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that it's because of her that all of us get to sin. The reason why humanity is condemned is because it's in Adam, because Adam was supposed to be the head. And the scriptures teach that it is the man who is supposed to be the head. He's supposed to be the picture of Christ. As a matter of fact, what is a church? It speaks of church as a bride, right? And that's speaking of all of us, right? That includes men in the church too, right? <laughs> so, you know, so the reason why the things are what they are is because God is given an order. He's given an order to humanity. So when the world out there is trying to tell you that God is sexist or that the church is sexist, you say no. No, God knows what he's doing and he's actually building a beautiful picture and you're trying to scratch it off. You're actually perverting what God is doing. And in doing this, what I like about, about uh, Romans uh, 16 is that if, if Romans is, a, is obviously the word of God, right? Because here we have Paul giving thanks and in essence giving credit to, to people, right? But there are many women in here. So what does that tell you, women? That tells you that you have just as vital a role in the church as any man does. As, as I've mentioned before, is the President of the United States the greatest man that ever lived or that is living? No, right? It's his position that is great. It's not the man that is great. It's the same thing with us. I, I'm married. I'm, I'm the head of my home. Does that mean that I'm greater than my wife? No. It doesn't even mean that I'm smarter than my wife. But what it does mean is that I have a responsibility. I have a picture that I myself have to fulfill in my own home of Jesus Christ. And so this is very important that we understand that when the church is working, everyone is important. Everybody has different roles. And, there's, and that's the reason why we have the titles and why we have the, the, the differences. But the, word, the role that women do is just as important as what men do. And one of the ways that we know that is because in, in, uh, in the book of Corinthians, right? When, when, when Paul talks about the church being a body and having different members, doesn't he, does he not make the point that he says, oh, you know, the eye doesn't say, I can't remember the exact, uh, to the hand, you know, I don't need you, right? All is needed. So in the same way, you women who are serving, you are doing a great thing. You're doing a very commendable thing. And the Lord and the Lord takes account to it. And you will be honored in this, in the way uh, these women are mentioned. And I'd like to uh, look at some of these names. So it says here that many of the women were thanked in the church. And so we have a lady by the name of Junia. There was a Mary of Rome. It, it doesn't mention this lady's name, but it says Rufus's mother. It has a Trephena, a Tryphosa, Julia, and Olympia. Those were uh, ones that I could discern from the text, but there are others that may have been women as well. And so that it's very important to understand that the work, the work of God is not only a male thing. This is definitely also uh, a thing for women. And a great example that we have in the Gospels is actually in Luke, you know, where Jesus was actually uh, visiting, a, you know, I, I believe it was the home of Martha, right? And we have in, in Luke uh, 10, verse 41 and 42, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So this is very, very important, brothers and sisters. Mothers play a very, very, very important role in the home. Very, 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 very important role in the home. Even though the man is supposed to, in essence, lay down what should be, if you really look at it, in the home, who really tends to be the teacher to the children? The mothers. Right? And here we have a great example. Because Martha is more busy about, was more busy about you know, cleaning and, and, and having people served instead of listening to our Lord. So what, am I, what is my admonition to you ladies? Do the good job that you do at, that you do at home, right? Or, or you know, along with your husband. But don't forget the essence of why you're here. The essence you are here is for the Lord. So you got to put the Lord first. You got to be seeking the Lord because that is our fountain of life, our fountain of salvation is the Word of God. And that's why the book of Romans is so important because we, we are learning these things. The very things that are not only important to you, 
They're also important to those, such as your children, you know, that you give this to. So you yourself have to have a strong connection with the Lord. Do you want children that are godly? Then you must yourself do that. One of the things that I would like to address, and this is actually in, in context of a conversation that I had with a, a good friend of mine that I used to work for. And we were talking about, in essence, how things are now and how there's so many, so many kids that, you know, they, they're not producing good character. And, you know, we tend to, it's very easy for us to say, oh, this generation, they're a bunch of idiots or, you know, they're just, oh, just more people. But we forget that. Why are they like that? There's a failure in the home. There's a failure in the home there. And so I was telling, and that's what I was telling my, my friend. I was telling him, look, the reason why you see this is because this is actually the fault of our generation. I said, look, I'm, I'm your age. I don't have kids. But you have, you have a child, right? And you're teaching this. But the reason why these guys are not doing that is because that's a failure there. Now, all those teachers that are teaching the bad things, guess what they are? They're all those knuckleheads that you used to go to school with. <laughs> you know? And I told them. And so it's very, very important. What I was addressing to him is it's not, not only important that you teach good things to your children, but you yourself have to practice good testimony. You have to practice what you preach. And I can tell you as someone who was a young person, that was very key for me when I was growing up. When I was a teenager, I knew the word of God to a certain degree, and I held it in my heart. But when my parents, when my parents uh, were, were telling me to do certain things, and then I saw that they didn't do them, that actually provoked me to anger. Because I thought to myself, okay, so you're holding me to a standard, you know, and you're punishing me at times for the standard, and yet you yourselves don't do this. Like, how is that fair? That's the, that's the favorite word, right? The favorite thing with the kids, right? Why is this fair? How is this fair? But the reality is, you know, there is truth to that. We have to have a consistent character. We have to be reflecting good character so that we can teach properly the kids. And ultimately, that's connected to the Word of God, right? Because if we have a good relationship with God, if we're taking seriously what God is telling us, what He's commanding us, and we're following it, then brothers and sisters, we're not going to have an issue with that. And when we're children, we have a, a different frame of mind. We think differently. Paul himself says that, doesn't he? That when I was a child, right, I thought as a child, you know, I did as a child. But as he got older, you know, he no longer was a child. And that is actually an implication to how we should be approaching life. We need to be learning from the things that we are experiencing so that we are not like children any, any longer, but that we are getting into maturity. That's part of sanctification, by the way. Sanctification, the part, of, uh, uh, the part of reaching holiness and perfection, is maturing, is learning. And this is why the book of Romans is a great example of that. Because this is a book that is giving us the purpose and giving us the instruction into what we need to be understanding and teaching people about the Word of God. The last thing that I want to give is just a wonderful example of a great doxology actually that's in the book of Romans, which is at the very end, which is Romans 16, 25, which says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through specific writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Christ Jesus. Amen. And it's a great, it's a great way of, uh, of him ending, ending, the later, ending the letter. You know, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Because we've got to remember the essence is Christ. I want to give uh, two quick applications. And the first one is that it is important to know the purpose of the books of the Bible. And the reason why is because God is giving us instruction. He's written these things for a purpose. And as Christians, if we're going to be representatives of God, we need to understand. We need to understand not only what we're reading, but what we're going to be teaching others. Because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, those that are outside need to be taught by who? By us. And it's not just us that are teachers and preachers, but all of you who are believers. Because at the end of the day, there, for instance, like going back to the women, many of the women are not official teachers here, but they're teachers in their home. So it's very, very important that we learn our Bible because this is how we are able to communicate the full truth of God. I'd like uh, to give us an example, 2 Timothy 3.15, in which Paul gives an admonition to, 
Timothy, it says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How do we impart salvation, brothers? Through that wonderful wisdom that is in the scriptures. Second, application is, remember it is the word of God that is effective. So in other words, yes, we go out and we communicate with people. But we got to remember something. That message that we're giving, the message that saves, whose message is it? Is it your message? No, it's God's message, right? And what is the proper way to receive that message? Or to give that message? Through the word of God. And I love the way uh, Psalm 19.7 uh, says it, which is, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So we see that though it is the word of God that is effective at reviving the soul, to give life, and to bring conversion. When you go out and speak, brothers and sisters, it is not you who's going to be converting the people. You're relaying the message. The one who does the converting is the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that gives life. It's not you. The reason you have life is because the Spirit of God is within you. And that's why it's so important that as we take the time to have this wonderful uh, uh, presentation through the preaching of God's Word, of the letter to the Romans, or the book of Romans as we like to call it, that we learn these things, brothers. So I highly recommend to you that as you're hearing these preachings, that you pay uh, good attention to the things that are taught in this book because they're valuable. As it was told to... Uh, to, uh, to Mary, right, in the, in the case of Martha, it's not going to be taken away from you. The things that you will learn from God will not be, be taken from you. Let us look to our Lord. Blessed Father, we thank you for your goodness because you are the God who has made us not only to make the creation, Lord, but that you yourself make us a righteous people. The people that are adequate for heaven have to be made by God. A man cannot do it on his own. If anything, Lord, we see that all of us go astray. And not, on, not only do we have we gone astray, Lord, but we were astray. The reason why we have peace with you is because you have called us. Because of the one whom you sent who has made all things possible. And that is your son, Jesus Christ. I ask you, Lord, to allow us to remember to cling to him, to pray to you, to meditate on your word, to sing songs, Lord, of joy to you, that everything, Father, may be dedicated to you, knowing that you are the one who, who fills everything and who brings fullness to all things to us. For we ask it in your precious and holy name. Amen.